this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindu's in focus podcast with me amit barua your host for this episode days after luis inacio lula da silva was formally inaugurated as the president of brazil right wing supporters of former president jair bolsonaro stormed and ransacked the offices of the president the supreme court and the congress in brasilia on the 8th of january the attackers who don't accept the results that brought lula to power for the third time appealed to the army to take power that however didn't happen taking charge of the situation president lula ordered army personnel into action dispersed bolsonaro's supporters while arresting 1500 of them who are now going to stand trial not a single casualty was reported in an obvious parallel to the storming of the us capital in january 2 years ago the attacks on democratic institutions led to massive protests in brazil calling for bolsonaro's supporters to be punished international condemnation of the incidents too was quick to place the brasilia act in perspective i am joined by varun sahani professor of international politics at the jawaharlal nehru university Welcome to the In Focus podcast, Varun. Uh, thank you so much, Amit. Uh, pleasure being with you as always. So, Varun, what do you make of uh, this January eighth attack? Uh, you know, what does it tell us uh, about um, Mr. Bolsonaro, his supporters, and how? What do you think is the long term kind of implications for Brazil following this attack? So, Bolsonaro himself. with many members of his family is currently in florida he is supposedly undergoing medical checkups that were scheduled before the uh, january 8th incident he is claiming he has nothing to do with this uh, obviously president lula has publicly uh, said that the ex president uh, you know has played a major part in stoking up uh, uh, this in this entire crisis and by not accepting the results of the election and uh, not being present at the time of the inauguration uh, of Lula uh, you know for the third time and so on so what's happening here well uh, it's been building up for quite a while partly of course it's mimicry uh, mimicry uh, is very important uh, you know in politics and so there is mimicry of uh, what happened in the in in the united states uh, last year sort of on, on january the 6th so so there's that there's that aspect uh, to it but obviously there are forces in a brazilian society and in the economy that uh, really uh, are finding this this change of uh, presidential power to be uh, really in some ways intolerable the you know some of the large sort of you know interests uh, involved in sort of you know the, the amazonia for example uh, clearly seem to have uh, you know a part in part in all of this there uh, is also and something we can explore further sort of you know clearly there have been links between uh, bolsonaro's people and some of trump's people and that evidence is also coming out so there so there's plenty in that sense for us to to sort of dig into further but in the image it sort of impact of it has been in fact paradoxically to strengthen uh, president lula uh because you know uh, uh immediately all three sort of uh, pillars of constitutional government have uh, spoken with one voice the governors of all of the brazilian states have sort of you know come out uh, 
very strongly. Uh, Bolsonaro himself sort of has has criticized uh, this action. Uh, his son Flavio, who's uh, a senator on the floor of the Senate, has said that look, you should not link this in any way to you know to my father, the ex-president, and so on. So it's really you know in that sense a bit of a mixed bag. So, uh, as you said, uh, you know, Mr. Bolsonaro has refused to accept the results of the presidential election. And he was conveniently in the United States in Florida when this incident happened. But but in the past, he has repeatedly said that if he's defeated at uh, the hustings, he's not going to accept the results and this is a fraud. So clearly, many of his supporters really have come to believe that these elections were a fraud because nobody from the international community has, you know, accused these elections, uh, you know, whatever be, uh, you know, the electoral process Brazil has followed uh, to say that these elections, uh, you know, were deficient or were fraudulent in any sense. So why do you think he's done that? I mean, to whip up his supporters? What's the reason behind that? Well, this goes back to his election way back, you know, when he and and this is you know in his when he was when he was fighting to you know be elected for the first time around, you know, in the entire campaign he kept sort of talking about how if he were not elected, uh, you know, it would be a sign of the elites, as he put it, you know, banding up to sort of ensure that he didn't get to power, uh, and when sort of you know uh, at that time it had ended up in a runoff. Because I think he had got, if I remember correctly, 46% of the vote in the first round. And of course, he won the runoff and was inaugurated and and was president. Uh, But throughout, even after he was president, he kept saying that, well, he could have won in the first round. And the fact that he was made to go into the runoff was itself an an attempt. So this has been something that's been a constant part of his his playbook. Uh, uh, And uh, in all of the period... Leading up to the, you know, the, his re-election attempt uh, against the candidacy of Lula, uh, you know, this was a constant refrain. So, so this is not something which is new. You know, this goes right to the time that he became a credible candidate uh, in presidential terms. So, so I think in that sense, uh, you know, when Lula sort of, uh, uh, you know, accuses him of uh, having played a significant role, maybe even b- having been the prime mover. In all of this, uh, you know, he's he's not he's not that wrong. So, Warren, you mentioned also that uh, you know, ironically, this attack of January eight, you know, it may have actually strengthened President Lula's hands because we you did mention how, how all three wings of government actually came together. So, how do you think he's going to be able to deal with this crisis? Because uh, uh, you know, however much you dismiss Mr. Bolsonaro, he does seem to have a lot of support. Absolutely. You know, and don't forget that there were a lot of fence-sitters in this election. Lula won by by really the narrowest of margins, as we know. And a lot of people who would, uh, you know, who, who might have thought of supporting a candidate other than a Bolsonaro didn't do so because let's not forget that Lula himself, after his two presidential terms, was incarcerated, you know, on corruption charges. Later, that was all thrown out uh, by the Supreme Court. Uh, he was, you know, allowed once again to sort of have a political role. But there have been people who were sort of pretty, who thought it was outrageous that someone who had been incarcerated, even if that verdict was eventually sort of, you know, uh, set aside, uh, you know, should should be making a play to be president once again, uh, particularly in the light of, you know, the fact that he had already been president twice before. So, so you know, there, there have been, there are a lot of 
fence sitters in, in Brazil right now. Uh, and the interesting thing is that this outrageous kind of assault, uh, not just on uh, on the presidency, but also on the Congress and on the Supreme Court, you know, has moved a lot of those fence sitters, at least for now, uh, Lula's way. So, so to some extent, you know, this action, you know, I do believe at least in the short, uh, perhaps even the medium term, has strengthened Lula. Now, to what extent, you know, he's he's a he's a very astute uh, political player. His entire political career is is is, is quite remarkable, and uh, you know, so to some extent, how he's now able to capitalize on this uh, is going to be critical. Uh, I think it's going to depend partly also on his building a certain sort of. Uh, at least understandings with the governors of sort of some of the more conservative states, some of the most, some of the more right-leaning states. So let's see. I mean, to some extent, this also interestingly parallels what's happening in the United States right now in, in terms of sort of Donald Trump and, you know, his role in the context of sort of the Republican Party in U.S. politics. So to some extent, you know, the, that's going to be the question. Are there going to be significant figures in the Brazilian right, who are now going to move away from Bolsonaro, uh, you know, and, and sort of stake their own claims, uh, as it were, to become the authentic voice of the right. But here, but but the fact that he has a, a core support, uh, you know, who can doubt that? So, so Varun, uh, you know, you mentioned Amazonia, uh, you know, in passing in your earlier comments. Uh, we do know that, you know, since uh, President Lula's inauguration on the 1st of January, he and his environment minister have made quite radical statements that how all deforestation, uh, you know, is going to stop in the Amazon. It, it appears that uh, a lot of people in Brazil uh, were upset by that. Do you think that President Lula's, uh, you know, persona and his policies both may have triggered this kind of an attack? Well, look, the Amazonia story is uh, is a very complex one, you know, in, in the kind of the broad political narrative. Of Brazil, I mean, for the rest of the world, you know, we look at that and see that as one of the world's, the planet's last carbon sinks, you know, and, uh, you know, in, in the whole context of sort of, you know, global climate change, you know, obviously, the world has a real vested interest in making sure that that primeval sort of, you know, tropical rainforest remains. But, you know, there has always been a very strong developmentalist uh, rhetoric, uh, you know, in Brazilian politics, indeed, in Brazilian national life. And to part, some extent, you know, some of the interests are, are very large, uh, you know, agribusinesses. Uh, Brazil is an authentic uh, agricultural superpower, no question about it. But, uh, you know, a lot of sort of Bolsonaro's policies also sort of helped, as it were, the, the small guy, you know, uh, the practice of Garim Pajim, which is about, you know, literally, you know, dirt scrabble kind of mining and quarrying, particularly for gold. Has it had really taken off again uh, during the Bolsonaro years, uh, and you know, and that's environmentally ruinous because you know you mercury is used, you know, as part of the whole process of sort of trying to you know uh, remove the gold from the other sort of particles, etc., that are being panned, uh, you know, out of out of river beds and so on. So, so there's a you know uh, there is, in other words, uh, a significant sector. Uh, of the population in, in that region. And we're not talking here about the First Nations, the indigenous people, but about, you know, Brazilians from other parts of Brazil who moved there, who who sort of do support Bolsonaro. No question about it. Their economic interests are, are, are very, very deeply involved. 
And now, uh, you, you know, you also mentioned about uh, the kind of mimicry that we've seen, you know, the parallels between the attack uh, on the Capitol in Washington two years ago and what happened now. I, I mean, would you, would you, do you think that uh, uh, right-wing elements, uh, you know, Trump supporters and Bolsonaro supporters, are they actually, uh, you know, thinking alike or are they coordinating their actions? Uh, they are not coordinating, but clearly there is a kind of a, a, you know a mutual learning going on here. There's another factor also, Amit, that we should probably put into the mix somewhere, you know, analytically speaking, which is, uh, you know, uh, a lot of uh, people who don't know Brazil very well don't realize that uh, you know the uh, you know the evangelical movement is now very strong in Brazil. You know, about about 31 percent of the population now identify themselves with evangelical Christianity, namely Protestantism. So we, we sort of assume that Brazil is this large, massive Catholic, Roman Catholic country. But for, uh, for, for a number of decades, and for reasons that are too complex to go in right now, uh, but certainly sort of worthy of consideration, if 31% of the population, they were talking about approximately 68 million Brazilians, identify themselves as evangelicals. Now, you know, I don't want to sort of say something silly here, which is that, you know, all evangelicals are conservative or, you know, extreme right wing and so on. But there is a certain degree to which, you know, you can see that even in the United States, so sort of a lot of evangelical believers sort of tend to also be uh, politically conservative, uh, uh, you know, and, and that there are clear links between the, uh, the evangelical churches in the United States and the evangelical churches in Brazil. 31% of the population is, is a figure which, you know, surprises most people when they, when they first encounter it. You, when, you, when, you th when we're thinking about mimicry, when we're thinking about links, coordination, these are some of the other factors that sort of do come in in, in, a, in a very significant way. The Roman Catholic Church uh, uh, in Brazil and in many parts of Latin America from the 1960s onwards has moved steadily in ideological terms, uh, to the left, right? And, and so, you know, uh, so, so this is also to some extent, therefore, filling a particular type of ideological gap. So, so these are some very, very interesting macro trends that sort of also, I think, play a significant part here, significant role here. So, and also, uh, what we've seen that, you know, international condemnation of what happened on January 8th was quite swift, you know, uh, from Biden, um, you know, uh, uh, onwards, uh, you know, everyone seems to have really condemned this incident. So would this international support uh, for uh, Lula also, you know, be important for his future? No, I don't think it's really a significant factor. Uh, I think I think if there had been voices that had not supported Lula, then that would have been a factor that we would have had to sort of, you know, analytically say it was significant. But the fact that, you know, most of the voices have come out, uh, you know, in clear condemnation of, of this is not something that should surprise us. And, and also sort of, you know, the, the role of the armed forces here has been really interesting because it's quite clear that in Brasilia itself, you know, the, uh, you know, the military police probably played a role in, in helping the, uh, the protesters. And certainly the security forces didn't, uh, you know, act quite... Uh, as expeditiously as they as they might have, even though there was considerable evidence that uh, these people were going to be moving from these temporary camps that were outside the military base, you know, over a hundred buses had been brought in, and there was considerable evidence that 
there was thing had things happening on the ground, and yet it wasn't prevented. So some Brazilian observers, you know, are contrasting this with the action of Brazilian security forces in the favelas uh, of Rio, you know, where there's a very different social class that is protesting, uh, and that you know that there was a certain light-handedness initially in the way these protesters were were treated. So that's one part of it. But on the other hand, the you know the, the Brazilian armed forces. Uh, you know, do feel that this round of Brazilian democracy post-1985 is something that they have gifted to the country, incredible though this may seem, uh, you know, within within the armed forces, there is that, there's that very strong feeling that, that you know, uh, the armed forces voluntarily decided to start a process of transition from authoritarian rule uh, and a process of sort of, you know, um, moving, moving to democracy that culminated with the civilians coming back in power in 1985. So, so to some extent, they do feel that this democracy, you know, whatever its, 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 its you know, contours, is something that they have given to the country. And in fact, see that as a legacy of the 21 years in which the military directly uh, governed, governed Brazil. So again, that's another kind of complicating factor that sort of, you know, we'll have to some, somehow focus on and take greater account of. And do you think there will be an actual process of, uh, you know, holding those people who are responsible for the attack uh, on January 8th? Will there be a, a legal process, what's your sense, uh, to hold these people accountable and actually prosecute them? Absolutely. And I think here it's partly mimicry. Again, sort of, you know, sort of what, what's happened in the United States with regards to the January 6th insurrection of, 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 of the previous year, of last year. But also, you know, there is there is some very interesting commentary in Brazil about how, uh, you know, um, there was no kind of process of of judging all the uh, you know human rights uh, violations and excesses and so on of the military period. You know, the twenty one years from sixty four to uh, nineteen eighty five, and that uh, you know uh, there was no equivalent of a peace and reconciliation process, anything like that, uh, and therefore a feeling that you know. There may be a certain sense of impunity here. That uh, the feeling that you can you can do this and get away with it. So I, I think I think the, there's going to be a very strong movement to going ahead with sort of you know uh, at least these 1,500 people. A lot of them are going to uh, find themselves you know facing a fairly severe judicial process because they also made the mistake of attacking the Supreme Court. They could have chosen not to get the Supreme Court involved, but you know they've they've gone for the judges you know and. Uh, and so the judges will have their day in court now, I believe. Uh, we leave it here, Varun Sani, Professor of International Politics at JNU, for this episode of the In Focus podcast. Thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, thank you, Amit. A pleasure. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.